Time for a quiz. The most popular class taught in the Stanford MBA program. Don't worry, it's not fill in the blank, it's multiple choice. You ready? Okay. One, optimization and simulation modeling. Two, managing groups and teams. Three, financial accounting. Or four, the touchy-feely class. What did I hear you say? Well, it turns out that interpersonal dynamics, affectionately called the touchy-feely class, is the most popular class in the Stanford MBA program. Is it because most people would rather have gum surgery than sit through a semester of simulation modeling? I suppose by comparison, some courses might stand out. Until you hear what students who have taken that course have said about it. Students frequently report the experience as trans... Again, students frequently report the experience as transformational. And alumni regularly say that it was the most impactful course they took and one that they continued to use in their personal and professional lives. So you're intrigued, right? Me too. So my friend Daryl Messinger introduced me to one of the folks who has been teaching this class for quite some time. And in fact, there was such an appetite for the lessons contained in this course that she and her colleague, David Branford, were asked to write a book about it. It won't surprise you to hear that experts say that interpersonal skills are fundamental to professional success. As my guest writes, quote, people do business with people, not just ideas, machines, strategies, or even money, end quote. You know this. You came to the nonprofit sector to change some part of the world, right? And if I asked 100 of you to describe the hardest part of your job, certainly many of you would talk about seeing the challenges your clients face or the inequities in our society. But it is not a stretch to imagine that many of you would talk about navigating interpersonal dynamics with staff, with volunteers, with donors, and yep, with your board. One more quote from an alum of Stanford's MBA program, and then let's get to it. Quote, I knew if I went to any top business school, I would learn how to be a better manager and leader. But I also believed if I came to again, but I also believed if I came to Stanford because of this class in particular, I would become a better human being, and that would in turn make me a better leader. End quote. Are you ready to hear this recipe? I bet you are. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector, My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Carol Robin is an award-winning teacher in Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, legendary interpersonal dynamics course, a.k.a. touchy-feely. Subsequent to leaving Stanford in 2017, she co-founded Leaders in Tech, a nonprofit which brings two decades of GSB lessons to Silicon Valley startup founders. She's also the co-author of Penguin Random House's new book, Connect, which contains the lessons of touchy-feely that thousands of students have consistently described over decades as life-changing. 
Prior to joining Stanford, she was a partner in an international consulting firm and a senior sales and marketing manager in a Fortune 500 company. She has provided executive coaching, leadership development, and executive team building to a wide range of business, government, and nonprofit clients, ranging in size from startups to global and Fortune 500 organizations, and is currently an advisor on several boards. She is also the recipient of two congressional awards for community service. Carol. I am so pleased to have you join me to get all touchy-feely with me today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Joan. So let's start by getting on the same page about vocabulary. Stanford calls this transformational class interpersonal dynamics. I also hear a ton of people use the acronym EQ. I mean, I even use it. If I'm talking about someone who reads others well, who seems quite authentic in their relationships, I might say, I think this person has a really high EQ. Help us with definition of terms. Are they similar, different, of a cloth? Talk to me. Yeah. So the term EQ was coined by Daniel Goldman. Okay. In, in, a, in a now uh, uh, very famous book and... Uh, that came out actually. We just celebrated the 25th anniversary of his uh, of his seminal work. Uh, and emotional intelligence, or EQ, as he uh, defines it, is about a set of competencies that essentially uh, include self awareness, uh, self regulation, uh, empathy, uh, the ability to motivate others, and and social skills. Now, one of the reasons that his work was so seminal was that he legitimized the need for social for for so, what we call the soft skills right. in business. And in fact, what his research showed was that the people who were the best at the soft skills actually were the ones who created the highest performing organizations and were the most successful. Now, that okay. does not mean you don't need the hard skills, but it does mean that you need the soft skills on top of the hard skills. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, it turns out the soft skills are the hardest. I did a, a workshop for a bunch of NASA, uh, very high level executives a number of years ago. And I was uh-huh. talking about all the stuff you and I are going to talk about. And at one point they were looking at me like totally overwhelmed. I said, come on, you guys, this isn't rocket science. <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, oh, Carol, this is so much harder than rocket science. So enter, how does this fit with the course? So the course was developed before Daniel Goldman's book hmm. uh, by my co-author, David Bradford. And it started out with, in a pilot with 12 student, one section of 12 students. By the time I came along a little over 20 years ago, they were teaching four sections of 36 students. And the, the course was becoming more and more popular in his book, really made it popular because students wanted to know, how do I develop this stuff? Right. And by the time I left, so they hired me because they, they were out of capacity, teaching capacity. They hired me. By the time I left, we were teaching 12 sections of 36 students and had hired six more faculty. Wow. So I guess my question, uh, a question for you is, 
How did they know how important it actually was? Like many of these people who, if I'm right, folks who go to the MBA program at Stanford, they just go to that. It's not like they're working in the day and coming to the Stanford program at night. So had they they already encountered the challenges of the interpersonal dynamics? Um, Or were they, I mean, I'm sort of curious about how they, how they understood how important this was. Well, I don't know what it was like 25 years ago, but I do know that in the last 15 years, there was not a single MBA who entered the program without saying, I came to this school specifically for this class. I could have gone to other business schools, but I came to this business school because all, first of all, all the alums say, whatever you do, don't miss this class. Uh It's worth the price of admission. Second of all, you know, they've been mentored by people who say, hey, yeah, you need all those hard skills to get started in your career. But the difference between ultimate, I mean, but it's made, the word ultimate is uncomfortable for me, but the difference between real professional and personal success and just mediocre is, uh, is actually interpersonal dynamics. They're a determinant of professional and personal success. Then what happens is when they get into it, they start to discover so many things about themselves, which of course puts them on a path to be lifelong learners about interpersonal dynamics. And then the flywheel just gets started. And then one alum tells the next class and the next class. And by the time you get to 2020, it's the most, uh, by the time we got to 2000, to 2000, it was the most oversubscribed class in the history of the class amazing. of the school. Amazing. Um, in the introduction of your book, yes, you capture the essence of what you call an exceptional relationship. Now, the lucky uh, yes. among us saw someone in that description. My, my wife, my best friend for over 40 years. I, I read that chapter and I thought, yep. I know what that is, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm looking that for that in a colleague or a staff member or particularly in my boss. And it, yet it seems a critical foundation for the book. It's how you start it and seems critical to what you have taught students through the years. So why don't you, um, for those who have not read the book, uh, define exceptional relationship and why you think it's so foundational. Yeah. So my hope is that our conversation prompts more people to read the book. (laughs) Um, And you're correct that the title is Connect Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. Right. Now, the fact is that relationships exist on a continuum. Uh At one end of the continuum is what I like to refer to as contact, casual contact, no real connection. At the end of the continuum is what we might call exceptional. The other way to think about the continuum is from dysfunctional to functional to mm-hmm. exceptional. Um, now, the, the, you can't get to exceptional without at least going through getting to functional and robust and strong. And so the, the, the big lesson in touchy-feely is not just, oh, how do I take any relationship deeper? But how do I even get a relationship that's not working very well to one that's working reasonably well? How do I connect with people that are really different than I am? 
who, and then they discover that, wow, they end up really close to people they didn't think in a million years they'd ever, you know, that jerk, you know, from my accounting class. Oh my God, I can't believe he's in my group. And then they turn out to be like best friends forever. So um, we are suggesting, and by the way, we are not advocating that you try to turn every single one of your relationships into exceptional. That would be exhausting, impossible and exhausting. A handful is more than most people even need or want. But boy, we do think there's an opportunity to turn every relationship into a stronger, better relationship. And there are skills and competencies that you need to learn in order to do that, or at least to have the choice. And that's what students find transformational. So um, just uh, in, in advance of people buying this book in droves after listening to this podcast... Um, From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> um, define an ex- what are the what are the core components of an exceptional relationship? In an exceptional relationship, you can both be more fully yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hide behind an image and you know spin your image all the time. Uh, and you can be vulnerable with each other, and you trust that that vulnerability won't be used against you. You can be honest with each other. You. Deal with conflict productively. It doesn't mean you have no conflict. It just means you deal with conflict productively. And you also are committed to each other's learning and growth. Mm. And, uh, and the combination of those factors in, uh, is what moves a relationship along the continuum. And when they're all present and they're all heightened, you've reached the exceptional end of the continuum interested and invest in each in, in each other's growth that feels like a really critical component in a colleague relationship in a boss you know an employee relationship that notion that and and I think probably fairly foreign for many many people to consider that um, your colleague is invested in your success and your growth and development, and like and conversely, the same is true. That's it's yeah, a, that you should be. Yeah, it's pretty aspirational, right? Um, so, um, so let's go to the vulnerability piece. Um, yes. uh, sharing who you actually are, not simply showing up as a briefcase filled with expertise. Um, <laughs> t- Tell folks about how to do that in a way that is productive. I kind of liked, you talked about this 15% rule because I think that people, um, you know, people come into, certainly come into workplaces in a somewhat guarded fashion, right? And so how how do you, how do you, that's why I think the 15% rule is interesting to talk about. Yeah. So, so first you're right that self-disclosure is fundamental to a deeper connection. Um, And uh, and it, it creates, uh, I mean, first of all, it gives you something to connect around the more I know about you and it builds trust, uh, because you trusted me to tell me something. And right. one way to become better known. And the reason of course is called touchy feeling is to talk about our feelings. Feelings give, uh, give, um, they give meaning to facts it's like treble and ba- and bass in music. You need both. But in business especially, we tend to err on the side of facts. Um, and let me give you a quick example before mm. I get into 15%, because I'm going to go 
15% outside my comfort zone in giving you this example. If you, if I want you to know me a little bit better, I can tell you my husband and I are moving to San Francisco at the end of this month. Um, and uh, we made a deal with our son and daughter-in-law and baby that when they had a baby, they could come live at our house in Palo Alto, which is in the Burbs. And we were going to go live in their condo in San Francisco. Uh, we were going to just swap homes. And um, I can just leave it at that. You learned a little bit about me. But by the way, that didn't feel particularly risky. Not at all. I could then add a feeling like we're moving to the city and I'm like really excited about repotting and uh, and the new adventure that awaits us. Mm-hmm. That also doesn't probably feel all that risky. It's also, by the way, not the whole story. And now I can take a little risk and I can say, we're moving to the city and I am really stressed out about it. And I'm stressed out about it. And I'm almost regretting that I made the deal a few years ago. And that's because I had no idea that we were going to be doing this in the middle of a pandemic after I had launched a book that I'm really stressed about whether or not I'm going to be able to get out into the world the way I want to. It's the worst time in the world for me to be trying to figure out how to move. Now you've gotten to know me a little bit better. Yes. And that has felt a little bit risky. And now let me tell you about the 15% rule and come back to my example. Okay. The 15% rule, basically think of three concentric circles. Mm -hmm. The circle in the middle is called your comfort zone. You don't think twice about saying that. That was the first stuff that I told you. Uh Uh-huh. The the circle on the outside is the danger zone. In a million years, I'd never tell you. And so I'm not going to give you an example because I would never tell you that. But the circle in the middle is called the zone of learning. And it's essentially, you know, if, if you've ever learned to ski, they don't leave you, they don't take you the double black diamond to, to teach you how to ski. They don't leave you on the bunny slope either. So you have to keep stepping a little outside your comfort zone. Now, our students, when we used to say you have to step outside your comfort zone to experiment with being more known and creating more connection, they used to say, but the minute I'm outside my comfort zone, how do I know I'm not in my danger zone? <laughs> so we said, try 15%, a little bit outside your comfort zone. You'll know. You'll know if you're feeling a little uncomfortable with what you've just said. And if the outcome is good, if you don't freak yourself out and you don't freak the other person out, then your comfort zone gets redrawn. It's a little bigger. And then you can go 15% beyond that. So when I shared my my angst around my move, uh, you know, I I felt a little bit uncomfortable because I have no idea how that's going to land with your, certainly with your listeners or even with you. But I figure it's small enough that if it doesn't go really well, you know, we could probably uh, recover. The, the, the cost of non-disclosure, by the way, is that I give you a chance to make up all kinds of stories about me. Yeah. The more I tell you about me, the more you can't make up stories. There's a, um, I did a, a expert seminar inside the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which is the membership site I run for yeah. board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. And we brought in, someone who talks about belonging in the workplace and uh, really um, 
I, I thought a very powerful uh, transgender author, activist named Rhodes Perry. And what he said was, we are all the stars of our own movies. <laughs> and it's really hard to create a sense of belonging if you've not seen the other person's movie. Right? The more yeah, I, I right? love that. I that's a that's a beautiful that's a wonderful way to capture it. And and furthermore, the dynamic, here's the dynamic part, which is if I if you hold your cards close to your vest, I'm gonna hold my cards yes. close. And then you're going to hold yours closer. I'm going to hold mine closer. We call that progressive impoverishment. Because, of course, in academia, we have to have fancy words. Yeah, but that's the very fancy. Is, yeah, and it the also is, oh, I'm neither sorry. one of us is playing with a full deck. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing is that if I'm the boss with the power yes. and I set the tone yes. that I don't, quote unquote, go there. Yes. Then you don't even feel like you have permission to go there, do you? That uh, that is a, such a critical point, and yeah, of course, in business, but really in any relationship where there's a power imbalance, right? So, to move along the continuum, uh, you you have to allow each other to be more known. Otherwise, you're not you're just not going to move. But what you've hit on is really important. So we've just talked about how important reciprocity is to us uh, opening up to each other. And when there's a power differential, it gets more complicated because expecting someone who's in a lower power position to be the person to start in opening up is not just unrealistic, it's unfair. They're already feeling vulnerable. Now you're asking them to feel even more vulnerable first. So the fact is, I think one of the most important things a leader can do is model disclosure and model vulnerability. And in fact, there's research that shows that leaders who are willing to be vulnerable, as long as it's not about their core competency, create (laughs) higher performing organizations. I totally believe that. It's interesting because the story that Rhodes told, so this is a a great example of this. I hadn't really thought about it till just now. So Rhodes said that when he worked for, he worked for the federal government. And I don't know who he he was, whether it was a colleague or a boss, but um, the question was, did you play sports in college? Right. That's just an obvious opportunity to get to know somebody. Right. So like kind of a nice relationship builder. But for Rhodes, the answer to that was really complex. Of course. Right. Because his answer, his true answer, if he was being vulnerable, was I played women's field hockey. Yes. Right. But he did not feel like he could go there. And of so course. he had a lot of different choices. He he did not want to lie because he's an authentic person. So he went with, I ran cross country. He did run cross country. That was true, but he did not disclose. Now, what's interesting about this, Carol, is that this is a Facebook Live in this membership community. Yeah. And he said... I wonder if any of you have ever had to guard your disclosure in that way. And his modeling of that, yep. the comments in the thread, I, 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 I was having a hard time keeping it together because they were choking me up. 
about what people were saying in that thread because Rhodes had told his story. Yep. Yep. And if we were live, I would have taken an even bigger risk. I mean, we are, you and I are live. Right. But we don't, but you know, we're not, we're not at an event, even a virtual event where, uh, so it's, it's harder for me to take an even bigger risk and be even more vulnerable because I need a little bit back before I go farther. Um, right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Once, once I've gotten 15% outside, I'm, I'm going to go 15% again, but after I've kind of figured out whether the first 15% went okay. What I like, what I like about this is I do a lot of work with CEOs and their leadership teams and you know, if you've ever read the five dysfunctions of a team yes, that yes. trust is is at the, you know, is at the core. core. And right. And and you don't build trust uh, any other way than by building relationship. Right. By being authentically you. Yep. And so I do this. Uh, I do this exercise, which I call not an icebreaker. And it's uh, I have people write a two page autobiography. I give them no prompt other than it has to have at least one picture, which is not a headshot. Uh-huh. And they could write anything they want in any format that they want. Um, and maybe there's a tip to the mission of their organization, right? But it's not a professional biography. But in order to get them to think about going there, yeah. um, I send them mine. And in my autobiography, there are two things that I don't know, you know, I know these people reasonably well, but it's like it's on my blog and it's one of the most popularly downloaded pieces on my blog. And it's my autobiography and there are two things that it talks about. One is it talks about the fact that um, that um, uh, in the 25 years I knew my wife's mother, she never spoke my name out loud and I was never welcome in her home. Uh, it also says that uh, my brother died of alcoholism and at the age of 59 and um, I was his rehab chauffeur and uh, I don't worry about him anymore and sometimes that makes me feel guilty. I don't think I understood how much being that forthcoming provided permission to people yep. when I engage in this exercise in this and these leadership team offsites. But some of the things that people write are just they're un, they're they're just unbelievable how people will really go there. And I think at least part of it is creating the space. Some of it is the CEO yep. and what kind of space is set. But I think some of it is here's what one of these might look like. <laughs> yeah. I also want to add that there is something really special about feeling more seen right, and known, right? So giving people an opportunity to feel more known. Uh, that's part of why the, why the course, you know, is eye-opening for these students. It's, 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 and they discover that when they allow themselves to be more seen and known, people like them even better, that the stuff they've been hiding is the stuff that actually other people feel more drawn toward. Right. So, um, and, and especially, and I'll come back, and that's why I keep coming back to feelings. A lot of people don't share what they're feeling. 
they might share facts about their life, but right. they won't share what they're feeling because that feels that feels even more vulnerable. I have a number. So in my leaders in tech uh, programs, uh, one of the uh, which, by the way, even it sounds like it's only for tech. I mean, it's if you're loosely associated with tech, um, and if you want to have a you know do a program where you learn how to do this stuff more, you can look up leadersintech.org. But um, what I was going to say is this: a lot of the CEOs who go through the program or executive directors of nonprofits um, come back, uh, learn this, this tool that we use, which is you start a meeting with 90 seconds of if you really knew me. And each person goes around and fills in, completes the sentence. If you really knew me, uh, and by the way, because what they've learned in, in Leaders in Tech and in Touchy Feelings, you got to include feelings. you got to have at least three feeling words. Okay. If you really knew me right now, you'd know that it's a beautiful day outside and I'm feeling wistful that I can't go walking today because I've got back-to-back meetings. If you really knew me, you'd know. So they go all go around, 90 seconds apiece, the meeting of 10 people didn't take very long. Right. But boy, they are constantly aware of what's going on for their colleagues. I love that prompt. I, I learned it that. actually from, I, it's not, it's not original. I learned it from somebody and I, I can't remember who, so I can't credit them, but. Uh, oh. uh, it's, it is, it's, it's fantastic. And if you really knew me, Carol, you'd know that when I finish um, recording this podcast, I have enough white space on my calendar that my wife and I are going to go for a 30 minute walk on the boardwalk. We're six blocks from the ocean and I'm going to get some salt air and I'm going to get refreshed by staring at the ocean, which is like one of my favorite things to look at. Oh, Um, and if you really knew me, you'd know that I feel jealous and happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what do you do? So let's, um, let's talk about, um, so we're talking about vulnerability. Let's talk about, um, you, you cover so much material in this book. I can't recommend it highly enough. There are two biggies, feedback and conflict. Um, take them in whichever order you would like. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it's, tell me what, how to approach, because these are the things people screw up that really um, thwart Yes. Good, strong interpersonal relationships. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about feedback. So I'm going to start with feedback and I'm going to say, I know a lot of my listeners are nonprofit executive directors who are pleasers, right? They... (laughs) First of all, you want to change the world. You're a highly optimistic human being, right? Absolutely. But you want to please people. And so when you do your annual review, maybe you're a little softer touch, yep. right? Or you talk through something, but you don't put it down on paper. And you give them a four on a scale of one to five when you probably should have given them a three, yep. right? So there's that emotional connection that you have to the person. They're overworked. They work hard. Maybe they're not your top performer, but they're not your worst performer former sort of so there's all these I think there's a lot of emotional dynamics in the nonprofit sector in general right is um, absolutely right because because there's a component of passion that is so high 
in the nonprofit yeah. sector that may not be as prevalent if I work for an insurance company, right? Yeah. And so or now a bank. I've yes. right or bank. <laughs> so I'm I'm in an emotional space at yes. a nonprofit. And so how do these things layer in and what advice do you give in the in a in your class or just here about yeah. Yeah. giving feedback? So first I want to differentiate that there are different kinds of feedback. There's feedback on a task, feedback on performance in a job. Um, and, and then there's feedback on uh, that's of an interpersonal nature, which right. is how you show up in the world. Yes. Uh, right. Now, the better you do the latter, the easier things are going to go with the former. But it's also harder. So, um, and what I mean by that is when it comes down to sit down for your review, uh, it might be that, you know, you haven't been, you haven't uh, been performing quite to the level that I had hoped, which is task-based. Yes. But it might also be that, you've been really irritating me because you've been coming in repeatedly late to our meetings. Yes. And if I haven't addressed that part, it's even harder to talk about the performance. Agreed. So I want to focus on the interpersonal feedback because A, it's harder, and B, if done well, it makes the other stuff easier. So let's talk about interpersonal feedback for a moment. To your point, and it's not just folks in nonprofit, but in general, people hold mental models, beliefs, assumptions. Oh, if I tell you this, especially if it's critical, by the way, these same concepts apply to, to feedback that you've got for somebody on strengths you want them to leverage, but, but that's easier. But if you do something that is problematic and I don't tell you, how are you going to know that it's a problem? So if I hold a belief that I'm going to hurt your feelings or you're going to think I'm a bad person or it's going to ruin the relationship, then I won't tell you. But right. if I don't tell you, you're going to keep doing it. And we talk in the book about something called pinches, which are like eh, like little annoyance. And then they escalate because I don't say anything. Then pretty soon they become crunches. So the first thing, the rule number one in feedback is update your mental model, your belief and assumption that saying something is going to damage the relationship, allow for the possibility that's going to strengthen the relationship. If I care enough about you, I'm going to tell you that you're doing something that's problematic. Feedback is a gift. Uh, one, the, the chapter in our, in our book is called Feedback is the breakfast of champions also <laughs> uh, because by the way how do you develop anybody without feedback correct and as leaders that is our job to develop others and and how often do you see performance review templates that speak to interpersonal dynamics and soft skills like uh, almost almost never. never and 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 I'll tell you the other thing that I wouldn't want to see them necessary I'd love to see them in there and inter feedback on interpersonal dynamics is something you should engage in all the time, not once a year. Right. So here's one of the keys to updating your mental models. 
So by the way, we've all stepped in a pile of doo-doo at one time or another when we tried to give feedback or when we observed somebody getting feedback or when we've gotten it. So, so our mental model is based on, on reality. We didn't just make that up. But in order to update it, we need more skill. The reason so much feedback goes awry is that most people are not very skilled at giving feedback, particularly constructive feedback, well. And the essence of doing that uh, and, and this is in the book, is to understand that in any exchange between two people, there are three realities. There's what's going on for me, my mm-hmm. intent in whatever I do. There's my behavior, what I do. And there's your reaction to it. Reality number one is mine. Reality number two, my behavior is the only one we both know yep. in, in a given moment. And reality number three is its impact on you. So if I have interrupted you four times in this meeting and the behavior is I've interrupted you four times, that's the only thing we both know. You have no idea why I've interrupted you, Mm -hmm. but you know that you're getting more and more irritated. Correct. So you can let me continue interrupting you and become more and more irritated. And then by the way, fly off the handle about how this report wasn't well done and it's got nothing to do with the report. Correct. Or you can say, you know, Carol, that's the fourth time you've interrupted me and I'm finding myself getting more and more irritated. And you started the meeting by saying you wanted to hear from everyone and I'm feeling less and less inclined to share my views because I've been interrupted. Period. That's called staying on your side of the net. There's a metaphorical net between my reality and my behavior and your reaction. You said, here's the behavior. Here's its impact on me. When you did X, I felt Y. That's the formula. And by the way, I felt Y, insert feeling word. Right. That's why there's a vocabulary of feelings in the appendix and in the syllabus. But here's what people do instead. You keep interrupting me and, and I feel that you want to dominate. That is not a feeling. I feel that you want to dominate is not a feeling. There's not a feeling word in there. So what is that? That's a judgment. It's a judgment. It's a label. It's an attribution. It's, a, you know, whatever. It's over the net. You don't know what I'm trying to do. So, for so you, you can't say, I, so you can't say, I feel like you're dominating me. That doesn't, nope. wow. there's no feeling there. So there's a discipline to saying, I feel, you could say, I feel put down. Mm-hmm. That's why you've got to pull up the vocabulary of feelings before you start making up what's going on for the other person or judging them or labeling. I feel that you don't care is not a feeling. Mm-hmm. I feel that you're not listening is not a feeling. You're not in my head. I don't know whether I'm listening or not. You don't know whether I'm listening or not. Where does the, um, where does curiosity come into this? Because I, I feel like, I think this is a big key, right? Yes. Because, yes. so how about if, if you had interrupted me like crazy, right? Yes. And I'm yes. getting progressively more in, 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 uh, irritated. Yes. What if I say, can we just, just stop for a second? Yeah. You, you've inter you've interrupted me several times. Yes. I'd like to actually know what, 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 
what's that about for you? Yes. I mean, I'm sorry to sound so shrinky, but, but the truth of the matter is, is I might want to, if if I understand, maybe there's something that I'm doing. Yes. Like if maybe I'm actually a complete and utter windbag and I won't shut up. And so you have to interrupt me to make your point. Yes. And you might interrupt me. I might interrupt you again. So you're absolutely right that inquiry is a, is an essential element of feedback. So what you've just done, so I started with the, when you do X, I feel Y. And I'm wondering whether there's something about the way I'm showing up that's making it hard for you to wait until I'm done. Right. There's also, and I'm telling you this because, by the way, feedback should start a problem-solving conversation. The purpose of feedback is not to change somebody. It's to start a problem-solving conversation so that, because people change for their reasons, not yours. So unless you speak to their interests, they're not going to change their behavior. Can we just say that again? People, say that sentence again, and I want everyone to be listening. People don't change because you want them to. People change because they are motivated to change themselves, right? There is some inherent incentive they have to be different. Yes. And that's one of the reasons we're big on naming feelings along with behaviors as part of feedback. Because if I say, I'm I'm feeling more and more irritated and you don't want me to feel irritated, that might help disincentivize you from continuing to interrupt me. Now, by the way, if we're both investment bankers in New York and I say I'm irritated, you're not really going to care. So that is not going to be the incentive. (laughs) But in that case, I might say, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to walk out of the room because I don't see the point of continuing to try to make my point. And by the way, if you want me in the room, you might not want me to leave. So behavior, impact, intent in telling you, curiosity. I I like all of those very, very much. During COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is now in paperback and you can learn more at book.joangary.com. Carol, Robin, and I are having an interpersonal conversation today about building better humans who build better leaders. We're talking about the power of interpersonal dynamics in being successful people, managers, and leaders. Um, Carol has written a terrific book with her partner, David Bradford. Thank you. I, I, I was grabbing it right here with David Bradford, and it's called Connect. What's the full title? I have Connect, but it's not, that's not the full title. Connect, building exceptional relationships with family, friends, and colleagues. And Carol, and who, yeah, go ahead. For those who are watching, <laughs> that's what it looks like. Beautiful, beautiful. And Carol is an award-winning teacher in the most popular course in the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. It's called Interpersonal Dynamics. Um, and she, prior to 
to joining Stanford, was a partner in international consulting firm, a senior sales and marketing manager, and has provided executive coaching and leadership development and executive team building to a wide range of business, government, and nonprofit clients. Um, and this is where it's at. If you if you don't get the interpersonal stuff right, you can be a genius. In fact, I have worked with several different clients where around that leadership team table was the person who everyone understood was the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And that person understood themselves to be the smartest person in the room. And it gave them permission, and I use that in quotes, to be what I call a bug crusher. <laughs> so a so bug crusher is a person who does not suffer fools gladly. And that if you say something that is not very smart, you get crushed like a bug. Yep. Right. And it doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the room, if your colleagues actually can't bear to be in the same room with you and your boss actually is just had it with you. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the room. So, um, so I'm all over this topic today. I want to talk now. I want to talk about conflict. Yeah. Um, where does in your in your class? How do you how do you teach how do you teach these students to engage in productive conflict? Well, let let's go back to first of all accepting that conflict is inevitable. Okay. And let's frame conflict in the same way we just reframed feedback as an opportunity to learn something about if you give me feedback, it's an opportunity for me to learn how to be better. Right. And if I give you feedback, it's an opportunity for you to learn. Let's, let's reframe conflict as an opportunity to learn a lot more about each other. What really matters? Mm -hmm. What, you know, what is, what's really important to you and what's really important to me? And maybe part of the reason we're in this conflict is, is that we didn't understand that before we got into the conflict. So curiosity, again, um, is a really important thread through the use of emotions is an important thread through interpersonal dynamics and not, and not being afraid to name them, so mm -hmm. not burying them. Because by the way, if I bury it and I'm feeling something strong, human beings are leaky. So I'm better off saying, man, I am pissed and having us talk about it than having me do all kinds of dysfunctional things. Correct. So um, the first thing, the first step is learning to name the fact that things have, you know, gone awry here. And uh, and and to both be committed to unpacking it. By the even, way, even ahead. that even that's hard for people. Even that is hard. right. So I I have, uh, let's say you have a client whose boss it's actually not a boss but like a sort of a colleague um, is undermining him in yes. some fashion, right? Yes. Yes. And um, and he goes to that person. And can't bring himself to say, you're undermining, that activity is undermining me. Yeah, and, yeah. and he is harboring resentment towards the colleague. Yes, but, yes. But hasn't come out and told the colleague or named it. 
Right. But go, let's go back for a moment. I'm feeling undermined is different than you are undermining me. Okay. I'm feeling undermined is unequivocal. You can't say, no, you're not. But if you say to me, you're undermining me, I can say, no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the discipline. And it's a discipline and there's some rigor to naming your feelings. I feel, pull up the vocabulary of feelings and find the word and drop the that and the like. Because it's grammatically impossible, by the way, to express a feeling if you start a sentence with I feel that or I feel like. It's grammatically impossible. Try huh. it. Okay. I feel that sad. I feel that disappointed. I feel that worried. I feel like in, like you can't do it. Okay. I feel like you're not listening is not a feeling. I don't feel heard is a feeling. So the words really matter, don't they? The words really matter. And now once you have, once you're along the continuum and you're far enough along, it's a little more forgiving. But especially when you're trying to make movement along the continuum, it's it's even more important to be rigorous. But um, but let's go back to the whole idea of conflict uh, or the topic of conflict, which is there are a lot of reasons people get into conflict. Sometimes it's because pinches become crunches mm-hmm. and it's just irritating stuff. Sometimes it's because one person's needs are not being met or neither person's needs are being met. And so sometimes so you have to start by just stopping and saying, wait, what's going on here? How did we get into this in the first place? And, I'm, and, and I, sometimes you actually have to take a break. If, right. if emotions have gotten really heightened, then just like continuing to, you know, we've got several, uh, you, you know, you've read the book, we've got several examples of, a married couple that get into a big conflict, a, a two girlfriends that get into a big conflict and how they, how they work their way through it and out of it. But the first thing is you name it. The second thing you do is you make a commitment to each other. My relationship with you is too important to have this not be talked about. Good. And if we don't talk about it, we definitely won't resolve it. And in doing that, you actually validate the person you're in conflict with, right? Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, one of the, I find it shocking how hard it is for most people to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is absolutely shocking to me. Uh, what is with that? If I've done something that upset you, whether I intended to upset you or not, I can feel sorry that, that, that what I did upset you, period. Uh, I don't so, have a good answer for you on that. So we're back. I'm to sorry, not, I don't. Right. So we're back to it's not rocket science. <laughs> but man, it seems to be hard. Right. Um, so hard. So, yeah, I think. Uh, and of course, dealing with a conflict when it's smaller is easier than when it gets bigger. And not dealing with it, by the way, a lot of people say, ah, it's not worth it. It's not Mm -hmm. worth raising. The next time you think that, substitute the word it for I, you, or we. I'm not worth it. You're not worth it. We're not worth it. 
And then ask yourself again whether it's not worth raising. That's a, that's a very uh, a very good kind of little marker for people to really think about. It's not worth it. Um, yeah, hold on to that one. That's a good one. Um, I'll say one more thing about please. conflict before we leave it. Um, conflict is a wonderful opportunity to learn. We we you know we talk about something called a fogs in the book. Another effing opportunity for growth. <laughs> I don't know your audience, so I'm not, I don't want to offend anybody. But, you know, in my classroom, I, I use the full expletive. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, if I can frame a conflict as, wow, I wonder what there is here for me to learn about me, about you, about us. It gives it a whole different, uh, I approach it completely differently. So try this one, Carol. Um, a donor, furious yes. at you. Yes. Got a lousy seat at a gala. You remember those galas we yes. used to have oh, back yes. in the old oh, days? Yeah. Or, yes. right, the donor, the donor's just mad. Maybe you yes. made a decision, a program decision they disagreed yes. with. I always saw that as, well, first, kind of an oh shit. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? of course. Right. Um, see, I know my audience, we could say these things. Yeah. Okay, good. But secondly, if they didn't care, they wouldn't be pissed off at us. Absolutely. Right. So let's see if what we can, right. If you, and if you actually, if you end up going into conversation with that donor and really yeah. get the understanding of the root cause, I, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I, we've made, you can make big sweet lemonade out of conflict lemons with a donor or someone who is really close to your organization who is really furious, but at the heart of their fury is how much they care about the work you do. Sure. And there is, there's a whole other concept in the book called meeting someone emotionally. Uh-huh. If somebody is really spun up, really, then the first thing they need before you start to figure out how to solve the problem is they need to feel emotionally met. Uh-huh. They need to, they need to feel heard. They need to, they really don't need to feel judged. They need to, they need to believe that they're entitled to feel the way they're feeling. You know, the last chapter in the book is, 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 is the story of how David and I had a huge fight and I said, I'd never talk to him again and how we came back from that. Talk about a conflict. Right. And how did we come back? And we, and we could not make any progress until I felt emotionally met by him. Mm-hmm. And until he understood that all his explanations of his behavior did nothing to move the needle on helping me feel more met. Yep. We just, you know, we just did a big thing for all the uh, uh, development officers at Stanford, uh, the Office of Development, uh, to your point about donors. And yes, they, they, all, they bought a book for every single one of their officers. Fantastic. And we, you know, we had a, an hour long sort of mini workshop practicum on how do you use all this stuff to create even stronger relationships with your donors. Fantastic. Um, we are almost out of time. And I, I, want, I do not want to lose this question before we leave. Yes. I think one of the hardest parts of being a manager is vetting candidates 
yes. for this set of soft skills. Yes. And I wonder if you can offer our listeners as we kind of close out, getting the right people on the staff bus or the board bus and how to approach an interview to unearth whether or not this person has these soft skills. Well, I'm hoping that most of your listeners are familiar with something called behavioral interviewing. So behavioral interviewing is, is is not a theoretical. It's a tell me about a time when you resolved a difficult interpersonal conflict that you had with somebody you were working with. Tell me about a time when somebody gave you feedback and how you reacted to it. Mm. Tell me about a time when you had to give somebody difficult feedback. What did you do? And how did you know what to do? How did they react? So you have to get them, you have to ask the question so that they have to tell you about what they did that tells you something about how interpersonally effective they are. So what is it that, what's the mistake most people make? Tell me about what you would do if. Now that's a theoretical. Instead, tell me about a time when. It's a lot harder to make up. It's a lot harder to make up. Yep. Yep. There it is. If or when. Words matter, don't they? They do. Um, we are really out of time. Uh, any last piece of advice for the group of nonprofit leaders who are out there changing the world as you think about what all the things that you teach, what you've learned from uh, Stanford MBA students over time and from all your consulting work, what's one thing you'd like them to remember? Be a, Well, I'm a teacher. So, of course, be a learner. Maintain yeah. a learner mindset. See the opportunity for learning and ev- every human interaction holds the opportunity for learning for both of you. And the more you create an environment where that's how people interact with each other, the, 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 more, the higher performing, I believe, it becomes. Uh, and, you know, the last piece of advice I have is buy a book for every single person in your life and do, by the way, don't buy the book and have it sit on your bookshelf. Right. Do the deepen your learning at, at the end of each chapter. It's like yep. taking the course. I, I think it may be we uh, made a commitment. I have a team of uh, of 12 people that's also kind of growing. And um, <clears throat> what's interesting is we're going to be doing um, some real um, diversity work um, also this year. And they, they're they connected, aren't they? They're yes, really connected. Very. I, you know, the course was called Interpersonal Dynamics. I always used to think it off. It should have been called Connecting Across Differences. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, uh, what a wonderful, you know, way to align some of the things that you're thinking about creating a culture of belonging in your organization with this notion of interpersonal dynamics. There are so many synergies here and you'd be wise to be thinking about those things as you plan out your year and how to really engage with your staff, um, your donors and your board in um, in very smart, good, solid, interpersonal ways. Um, Carol Robin, what a wonderful opportunity to have the time to talk with you today. And thank you so much for sharing all of these. Um, uh, all of your, I've learned a lot of important vocabulary today, so I want to thank you for that too. But thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Joan. And good luck with uh, your work. Well, thank you. And um, for all of you, I hope you found that as um, eye-opening as I did. And uh, I'll let you get back to your day. And um, 
As always, thank you for the work that you do and for the opportunity to support you. Take good care. Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.